we've got to be the talent that comes in and brings some pieces together. One of the pieces is a sense of urgency. Uh, one of the reasons that uh, organizations tend to derail on these uh, buying processes is because there's no common sense of urgency among all participants. So we wanna make sure that we got a message about urgency. And one of the ways we can create that message is by focusing on the cost of inaction. Welcome to Outside Sales Talk, where we meet with industry experts to learn the strategies and tactics that make them successful. I'm your host, Steve Benson, and I've helped thousands of salespeople all over the world crush their quota. Today, I'll help you crush yours. Welcome back to Outside Sales Talk. Today, we're talking about deal-killing obstacles in B2B sales. So I've got Tom Williams and Tom Sane on the, uh, the podcast today. They're the authors of The Seller's Challenge, How Top Sellers Master 10 Deal-Killing Obstacles in B2B Sales. Uh, great book. Uh, Tom, these guys have deep backgrounds in sales, obviously. Um, Tom Williams is the Managing Director of Strategic Dynamics, Inc. And Tom Sane is a Senior Consultant with Strategic Dynamics, Inc., and a former senior sales executive at Aramark. Um, really excited to have you two Toms on the show today. We're glad to be here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Steve, for inviting us. So, well, let's jump right into it here. Um, first of all, what motivated you to write your book, The Seller's Challenge, and, and why 10 challenges? Let me uh, start by saying there's really uh, two answers to this question. You know, first, um, after, after leaving corporate America and sales leadership positions, Tom and I began conducting sales training where we facilitated programs on sales methodology. Uh, and while these, these programs typically were involving uh, call planning and execution, you know, winning a complex sale, managing key accounts, negotiation programs, selling it in a C-suite, and also coaching around each of the, uh, the different methodologies. When we conducted these programs, however, participants would always come up to us during a break or at lunch, uh, over dinner, and they'd ask specific questions that puzzled them, but yet weren't being covered in these specific methodology classes. So the genesis of the book really was around us compiling a list of obstacles the sales professionals found that were hard for them to cope with uh, and then provide them the answers. And really the second reason for the book is we didn't want to write another book on prospecting or call planning or coaching since that's been done so well by others. We wanted to find a niche that hadn't been covered and yet would be very meaningful to sales professionals in B2B or B2C situations. Makes total sense. Yeah, let me just add a comment. One of the things that I think we wanted to achieve in all of this was to have something that was a, a book that went in your portfolio or your bag, your computer bag. It was not one of the ones that you left on your desk or in the office. This is one that you could focus on a problem. You know it's coming up. You turn to a chapter that is relevant to it, and you get some clear ideas about some steps you can take. All right. Makes total sense. And, uh, and, I, and I, uh, I loved it myself. Uh, tell me, one, one thing you discussed about discussed a bit is, is changing in, the, in, in B2B sales. Tell me, how, how do you guys see the world of B2B sales changing? 
Well, there are, there are a tremendous number of dynamic forces that are at play that are uh, impacting our whole culture. Technology is, it's not just there, it's not just changing, it's changing rapidly and it is changing exponentially. And so the result is that um, things that we look at and we say, boy, I wish that would really have that capability. It probably either does have it and you don't know it, or it's gonna have it and, and within a few months or a year or two years. Uh, I heard one uh, prognosticator on technology say, anything that you can dream of short of human teleportation, you know, beam me up, Scotty. Anything except that is going to happen in the next five to seven years. So we're talking about massive change. So when we look at things, we got to ask what's going on with technology. And technology, I mean, if you look at CRM systems, social media, all the elements of the mobility uh, of phone systems and iPads and, and uh, your web capabilities, all of these things are relatively new and are impacting how we sell. Now, we all kind of know that, but let me share with you some things that are maybe other dynamics you, you don't know about or you, you suspect. The first one is that the number of people that are touch any kind of a buying decision for a corporation or company is increasing dramatically. So if there were three people involved in making a decision last year or two years ago, there are five or six now. The average number, Gartner says, of influencers involved in a complex B2B sales on the buying side is seven. So you think back about, gee, I sold these people several years ago and there were three of them and you imagine in your head, now I'm gonna to try to resell or sell something again. What I'm gonna do is catch up with those three people. I got it covered. Not really true, not true at all. The reality is that the numbers have probably increased, not just insiders to the company, as companies have merged, and compressed. The reality is that we have more people from what used to be different companies involved in the same kind of decision process. We're well, this, seeing this touches on a, a key a key thing that that you cover in the book: stakeholder mapping. Tell me, uh, what is stakeholder mapping, and why is it so important for sellers? Well. <laughs> Steve, stakeholder mapping is really a process designed to identify the key stakeholders, users, specialists, some people call them third-party influencers. Uh, they're also in, all involved in the buying process. So it's not just talking to the people that we're the most comfortable talking to, but it's really understanding all of the key people who are going to be involved in the purchase of that profit, a product, service, or solution. And, uh, you know, to quote a you know, guy that wrote a book called Strategic Selling, Bob Miller, you know, he, he made it pretty clear. He said, you when you, when you know who the key players are in a sale, you can actually have a chance to win it. And so that's really what, we, what stakeholder mapping is all about. You know, it's our opinion that, you know, the failure to identify all the stakeholders in a complex sale is the number one reason why sellers lose deals. In other words, it's somebody that comes out of the woodwork that you didn't even know was involved 
that delays or nixes the deal. So stakeholder mapping is really an attempt to get your hands wrapped around all of those people that are involved so you can develop a concrete strategy then to go win the deal. And tactically, how, how does a, a sales rep go about identifying who those key stakeholders are? Where, where are they slipping up and how can they do better? I think they're slipping up by the, they, in one of two ways. One is I think that the most common way they do it is to talk to the people that are, most, that are users of the product, service, or solution that they're talking about. And they fail to identify the folks that are, who's going to actually make the decision? Who are all the other tangential people who are involved? Who are the, who are the, the people that the users are reporting to? Who are the people in procurement that are going to be using the product or are going to be uh, uh, purchasing the product? And lastly, what are those external stakeholders? I mean, there's consultants that are, have impact on, on sometimes on a product, service, or solution that's being purchased. Uh, there could be buying groups that are out there that they, they talk to. Uh, they could be technology groups. So there's a variety of, of, of ways, and we, we illustrate some of that in the book so that people can look at almost like a cheat sheet and say, here's how I, I, I need to identify these people. What are the key questions that you can ask the people, the stakeholders that you do know to find out if there are other stakeholders that you need to uncover? I think the number one question I always ask is who else, is, who else besides you is involved in the purchase of the product, service, or solution? Yeah, that, that's really, really important. <laughs> that, is a, a, that, that is one of those key, those key sales skills. Um, so, you know, Steve, just as kind of a, a, a small addition, uh, one of the things that you can do is, is if somebody has um, reports from whoever is heading the committee and they have sent out some information to read or this, that, the other, if you can have somebody look and see who is CC'd, very often that'll tell you what the other committee members are or who's involved in the process that they're sharing the information with as well. Yeah, I like to try to help. Uh, I think that's a great way to, to uncover it. And I like to, to kind of walk through what's gonna happen next with, with a buyer because they don't always know, you know what, what the next steps are in the process. They, they maybe haven't bought that many things, whereas you, in, in particular, they've never bought your exact thing before. You know what the next steps are. You know what the sticking points are. You can ask, hey, is anyone going to, to get access to this information, are we going to need some kind of um, authorization from the chief security officer, or are we going to need the IT team to, to, to help get us technical access to this program, or, you know, if, if you know that, you know, the contract is complex and always gets negotiated by attorneys, like, is there, you know, you can ask, hey, are, are, does your legal team need to get involved to sign this contract? Here, here's the, we haven't filled in the, the particulars of the contract yet because you don't know how much you want, et cetera, et cetera. But should we be, get, if you floated this contract by your legal team, would they want to start looking at it now? And can we run that process in parallel? So, you know, kind of, you, you know, the stakeholders in, in different companies are often very similar across different deals that you've had. And so it's almost like if there's, if you usually need to get authorization from the chief information security officer and you're not talking to that person in this deal, you probably want to figure out who that is or if that needs to be signed off on. Yeah, definitely. I think, Steve, you make a great point. Not only do you need to identify who that person is, but I think you can go offer the guidance and say something along the lines of, 
you know, in our experience, either if we're going to move to forward together in this solution and work together, in our experience, you know, these are the types of people that need to be involved and these are the type of people that need to be involved at this point in time. So we help guide that, that process and help the buyer make buying easier. Yeah, makes a ton of sense. Um, in, in the seller's challenge, the, you, you guys talk about how the status quo can be a formidable competitor, if not your biggest competitor. What, uh, what, what would you guys say supports that point of view and what should sellers do to improve on their competitive, competitive position against the status quo? Let me start off with uh, sharing with you a data point that I think is very scary. Uh, this is uh, the result of some research kind of concurrent among a number of major research organizations about sales. And that what they've found is that recently, 23% of the sales that have been uh, classified or designated as a likely win by a sales rep 23% of those fail to materialize or be awarded at all. So what that tells you, think about how many people are on a sales force and how many sales have been scheduled to or deemed likely wins for the organization and the revenue that that represents. And then think about taking away 23% of that because it just never materialized. And the reasons that it doesn't materialize, there are a lot of them. One of them is that the buying processes are becoming so complex that it's easy for groups of people to kind of lose the interest in that there are other fishes to fry in the organization. There are other uh, major initiatives that they want to be sure get through and all of a sudden there's no one pushing this organization to make a, a difference. And that's especially true when you think about there being an incumbent supplier. All those people are trying to do, they're not trying to push the system along, they're trying to make sure that the system doesn't make a decision. So when you look at, at something like uh, the status quo, and the status quo can kind of be a couple of different things. It might be uh, a, a supplier that's an incumbent, but it also could be internal people who have created their own software solution for a problem using their own talent. And those people have enormous pride in what they're doing. They're absolutely committed to see this project through year by year. And they have their own personal reasons for not wanting to see the process completed. So one of the things that we have to do is, is be sure that we've got a clear focus on where they are in the process. And then we've got to be the talent that comes in and brings some pieces together. One of the pieces is a sense of urgency. Uh, one of the reasons that uh, organizations tend to derail on these uh, buying processes is because there's no common sense of urgency among all participants. So we wanna make sure that we got a message about urgency. And one of the ways we can create that message is by focusing on the cost of inaction, the cost of the organization not acting now 
to make this decision. A lot of organizations simply don't calculate that. Um, the, the other element in all of this is to think about risk. One of the reasons they aren't urgent in their desire to change is because they truly fear that change will bring around risks or problem areas that they haven't calculated. Uh, and that can certainly have an impact on the members of the committee. Sometimes it's just simpler to maintain what you've got, even if it's not fabulous. In fact, there's a, a term that one of the buyers that we were talking to one time said that I, I know we've heard before, and that is good is good enough. They don't need to have the best. They just need to have something that's appropriate to their needs. Mm -hmm. So when you think about good is good enough, that's what you're fighting. You're fighting an incumbent, perhaps. If not an incumbent, you may be fighting internal people. So the whole idea of calculating risk, looking at the cost of not changing, become terribly important ways of trying to energize what, what may turn out to be a, a derailed process. Yeah, I think this is such an important thought. I mean, in, in almost, well, in every situation, the customer that you're selling to, their business has a way that they're currently doing the thing you're selling. It could be by rubbing two sticks together. It doesn't matter what the, but they have a way that it's getting done. And it's so important to get them to dig into how are they doing it today versus if they had your project product, envision a world where they would be doing it this way, the way you do it, and how much, how much money would they save them? How much additional would they sell? How, you know, how, map it to whatever KPI their business needs and, uh, and, and, and be able to measure the difference between the way they're doing it today and, and the way they could be doing it with you and put a dollar value on that. Well said. Um, so in your chapter, Inside the Black Box, you address the challenge of selling to large committees or groups. And this is something I've seen before. I've got it. <laughs> I, I, we, were, we were once selling Badger to a, uh, a large company who will go unnamed. And they were, they were uh, it was probably a Fortune 50 company. And there were 17 executives in the room uh, from the company. And they all basically were, were in a, agreement that this would help their sales team sell more. They would do better with it. It was kind of a slam dunk. It, you know, it was in budget. Their issue was amongst the 17 executives, they, we literally spent two hours bickering, well, with them bickering and me sitting there wringing my hands <laughs> about who was going to own the project should we go forward with the project? So everyone thinks it's a good idea. It's going to make them money. But what? who would own this? Is it you or me or them? Or who? who's in control of what element of it? Who uh, Who pays for it? Um, you know, there, it, it uh, and nothing, still nothing has gotten done with that company on, you know, from my perspective, like they, they, uh, they still need the thing. They still want the thing. They just, they, they're, they just kind of chase their tails on this. So you guys address this in, in your book. When, when an organization or a seller is faced with committees like this, how should, 
how should a seller prepare differently? Um, how, what can they do to overcome this challenge? Let me kind of frame what the reality is and why we called it a little black box, because that may give you a little bit of a initial uh, platform for what we'll be talking about in a second. The reason we call it the black box is because people, no one knows what's in it. And the reality is that as a buying team, it's larger and larger and larger. And I don't want you to think now just about six or seven people. I want you to think about if the team has 20 people or 25 people on it, uh, and it's a formal meeting committee, what's going to happen is there's going to be a lot of formality to who can talk to whom about what. So all of a sudden, the access that you had for three people now is washed away by the fact that they have committee rules, not just for this project, but for every other buying decision, that they don't talk to someone outside until everybody can be a part of that discussion process. So you've got all those kind of issues. Now, I also want you to think about for a second, not just the black box, but the ability um, of individuals to get opportunities to present their case. What if they decide that, you know, we've done a lot of research on our own, we've gone on the internet, we've gotten uh, price quotes from other organizations, uh, on the internet, we've found out reviews from companies that have used your product. Uh, we really don't need to have you in now. Well, what that means is that you have later entree into the buying process, if at all. They also may decide, you know, what we don't need is a bunch of presentations, because that's just going to be to test who is the best presenter. Why not instead, we just develop a scorecard and we'll just pick the one that complies best with our scorecard criteria. And so all of a sudden, there are pieces of the traditional selling process that now get eliminated or minimized or changed in format. So that's part of the situation. Now, let, let's imagine, because I really do want you to, think in terms of going into a room that's got three people in it versus having 15 people in it. Uh, in, in those kind of situations, there are several possibilities for how they might have created a format for making a decision. They may have decided that at some point in time, they're going to vote. I think all of us like to think that that's how decisions are made. And that if we've gotten to more people than the next competitor, then we'll, we'll probably win. We'll convince those people to speak on our behalf. But what if it's a consensus model? What if the situation is totally different and you've got to reach agreement of all those 15 people that are in the room? Then your job as a salesperson means what you've got to do is to meet with people or connect with people that you can bring a consensus together so that a decision can be made. Because if it's a consensus model and 15 people, 
boy, the chances of that ever turning in to an actual award are very low. I mean, data's pretty clear on that. Mm -hmm. So what you've got to be able to do, you've got to find ways to determine what the process is, who's managing the process, get to that individual, connect with them, give them some alternatives and strong reasons why there should be more access, more content, the sharing of more information, direct representation of the company. Otherwise, it's going to derail or it's going to be awarded back to the incumbent. Yeah, that's golden advice for sure. Um, for, for many people, I would say, in many of the sales reps in our audience, procurement or the purchasing department, there is a major obstacle in selling. What recommendations would you share when, when faced with a strong procurement department presence? Steve, there's really a couple of points that we like to point out to, to sales professionals. You know, first is to remind them that it's, it's procurement's job to drive down the price of the product, service, or solution that, that you're selling to them. Uh, keep in mind that every dollar that they save drops straight through to the bottom line. So think about that for a moment. You know, that's a major, major profit generator for the organization. They can either increase revenue by X amount or they can beat up their vendors and, and, and through cost savings, um, improve their profitability. So that's number one. The second thing is, though, is to keep in mind that it's not, that's not all doom and gloom for sellers. You know, keep in mind the procurement has got stakeholders internal to the organization that they must satisfy. And if you can develop user champions, that becomes a very, very powerful force. Because those users, those people who are, you know, that need to use the product on a day-to-day -day basis, they're going to be, they're, they're concerned about risk. You know, they're concerned about, you know, who gets, who gets blamed if the product is, that's purchased on price alone fails to perform, you know, when they get it on the assembly line or they get it, you know, in actual use. Uh, who gets blamed if the product is purchased on price alone has out-of-box failures. Uh, they're the ones that have got to deal with it. They've got to get it back to procurement and, and those types of things and get it fixed. Who gets blamed if the product is purchased on price alone and it becomes backwatered and they can't do their job? That's what, you know. So all of those things are, are are factors to keep in mind. The procurement has to has to well, they want to beat you down on price. They also want to ensure that they satisfy their internal stakeholders. And lastly, we developed the matrix in the book that really plots the impact on financial results versus supply risk. And we give the the sales reps a four quadrant matrix. And if you take a look at that, it'll tell you immediately where your product fits and which of the four quadrants, uh, how procurement looks at it. And that will tell you immediately what their strategy is going to be, whether they're going to beat you down on price or whether they're going to try to actually you know, become a partner with you uh, and try to work with you. So it becomes a, a, a platform for strategy development of how to work more effectively with them. Yeah. Um, well, that, it, tell, tell me a little bit more about that, about that strategy that you have there, about that quadrant. How, does, how, does that, how is that set up? Well, it's set up between looking at low and, low and high supply risk and low and high impact on financial results. And so the, the quadrants on the left-hand side are, re, are really around a pricing strategy. The quadrants on the right-hand side are, are really around what we call a value strategy. So, for example, you know, if you're a if you have low impact on the financial results and a low supply risk, in other words, they can get it anywhere, 
that's a routine item they put on I put it on on contract under a blanket PO and they're going to beat you down on price um, if you're in a, in a quadrant of where you have a low impact on financial or high impact on financial results but a very low supply risk that's typically where you see RFPs or competitive bids that go out reverse auctions those types of things they really want to leverage you leverage the you and really come to beat you down in price because they know they can do that. If you're on the far right-hand side of the quadrants where you have, where there's a much higher risk of supply, in other words, there's less ability to commoditize you and you have a, high, a low to a high impact on their financial result, that's where you have a better leverage in order to hold your price and sell your value. So it's really just helping the, the seller you know, understand how purchasing thinks really, right? right? Isn't that what we all try to do? Understand how the buyer thinks and then develop our strategy concurrently. Yeah. Well, one, one thing uh, I always coach reps to do, if, if they know that, f find out before you give a price <laughs> if procurement's going to be involved. And in general, you know, people's prices tend to have a ton of thought put behind them and they tend to be fair. They, the market kind of determines what, what business, what the vast majority of businesses can charge. I mean, there's, I mean, you'll find the rare business out there that has just a, a, a beautiful monopoly on things and they can charge outrageous prices, but, or an amazing brand that allows them to charge outrageous prices. But in general, I mean, you know, it, it, given the access to information and the competitiveness of our market, you know, most things seem to be priced pretty fairly. And so, you know, um, if, if there is going to be procurement involved in something, I, I recommend that reps find out about that before they give a price and then find a reason to make their price 25%, 20, 15 to 25% higher, I guess, um, to this particular customer and let procurement, you know, negotiate you back down to where the, the price is, uh, is appropriate again. Um, you know, certainly in, in, in our business, like, you know, we, we, we always run into this and it's like, well, we're very transparent with pricing. It's on the website and it's priced fairly. It's, it's you know, so, so the procurement kind of, they often get paid to, to jam people down by, by 20 points or so. It's, it's, you know, they're, they're incentivized. They're almost like reverse salespeople. <laughs> so they're, sure. they're in, they have an incentivization scheme and, you know, their, their, their wallet is dependent on them getting, you know, money off of that original, uh, that original uh, price or, or, or proposition that you gave them. So let them be winners. I mean, let them, let them knock it down 25%. And, you know, if you know your the fair price for this deal was $50,000, you know, charge them, <laughs> charge them 60,000 and let them bring you back down to 50. And then everybody wins. They, they, they win, you win, everybody wins. Um, but that's, that's my, that's one, one thing that uh, I always advise reps that I'm coaching to do when, when, you know, make sure you know about it and, and then take that action. So tell me, uh, gatekeepers always pose an obstacle to sellers in almost all markets. What advice do you have for salespeople that would help them get to get to a stakeholder that appears to be insulated and accessible behind a gatekeeper? Steve, the first thing that we suggest to sellers is to stop thinking about people as gatekeepers. 
and th- you know, and just have a change in mindset. And have and instead think of them as vice presidents of access, or vice presidents of talent scouts. Uh, in other words, adjust your adjust their attitude and recognize that that these folks really have got a couple of objectives. One, to keep the wrong people out, allow the right people in, make sure the right people get to the right executives, and then protect and respect an executive's priorities. And so they, they really hold the, the keys to the kingdom. And, you know, we, instead of looking at them as a gatekeeper, have that change of mindset that they're vice presidents of access or vice president of talent scouts for the organization. So our advice is pretty simple. Treat them with respect. Don't try and game them or manipulate them. Don't ever lie to them or get pushy. And in the book, what we do is we provide some guidance around presenting the gatekeeper with a problem and asking for advice uh, and treating them as if they were the, the boss or the end user we need to get to. And our approach works because it's genuine and builds credibility for the seller. Yeah, that, that makes a tremendous amount of sense. Um, well, the next, the next section in the show is what I call sales in 60 seconds. So what I'm going to do is ask you guys a series of questions and the goal is to answer them quickly in you know, about 60 seconds. Sound good? Yeah. Okay. It sounds like, it sounds like one of those shows on Thursday night or something with Ellen. Okay. <laughs> Where everybody is, uh, you know, they're dropped. Do we get dropped into something if we don't answer quickly? Yes, yes. I, I'm actually going to be uh, dropping a whole bunch of that Nickelodeon green goo on your heads. I don't know if you okay. guys remember that, but, um, but uh, <laughs> so, so uh, first question. In developing and executing a sales call, where do sellers often fall short? There are a bunch of things, one of which is uh, they talk too much. And what they need to do is to or figure a way to get the uh, uh, customer or the buyer to talk and about things that are meaningful to them. Uh, there's a lot of research that indicates that the person who talks the most likes the other person the most. So if you want your prospective customer to like you, you need to figure a way to ask the right kind of questions and engage them in a conversation that's relevant to them about important issues. So I, I, that's my answer and I'm sticking to it. Outstanding. Um, in, in your guys' book, you mentioned that sellers are leaving money on the table when negotiating price. What can sellers do differently to avoid discounting price? Well, the first thing I'd say is anytime that you give something like a discount or whatever, make sure you get something in return, like a longer contract. Uh, you can call that uh, whatever you might, but it's a, it's a trading format. That's where in. If you're giving them something useful financially, make sure that you get something back in return. Um, a, a second point that I'd say is, don't ever negotiate with yourself, which that's, that sounds silly, but a lot of salespeople do that. And that is they hear about, you know, that the, the organization may be wanting a little lower price or whatever. So they jump at that thinking that that'll close the deal quicker. And what they're in fact doing is giving away money because they haven't really asked for anything yet, but now you're giving them the five, six, 10%. Yeah. Uh, 
I, I would add to that, be confident in your price. If it, it, and you know, if you're a salesperson selling stuff all the time, if it is a fair price, I mean, some, sometimes you'll find yourself selling something that upper management has just priced unreasonably and you end up, you know, discounting a ton. Um, but you know, on every, on every deal, but if in general the price is appropriate and, and you'll know, you know what the market is as a salesperson, um, make sure you're not just knocking 10% off that price early in the process for no reason. Um, right. Exactly. If, Make sure it, before you ever give money off of a deal, make sure the reason the deal isn't closing be, is because because the, the price is too high. If it, it find out why the deal's not closing yet, and if it's not because we just don't have the budget for this, and there's usually uh, it's usually something else I've found. Right. Um, another thing that jumps to mind on, on negotiation and and that give to get that you were talking about. Uh, a sales management team or senior leadership on the senior people on a sales team can often put together like a list of good gets that you guys want. And then a list of gives and kind of, and, and pass that around to the sales people, the sales team and, and have a have a meeting with them where you show them, Hey, these are the gives that we can give to people here are the gets that we ask and make sure if you're giving something off the give side, make sure you're getting something off the get side. And here's kind of, you know, which ones are big, medium, and small gifts and gets, but it, it helps them think of something to ask for and that are actually meaningful to the business. Like don't ask for things you don't actually care about. Like, Right. Uh, the, one of the things that we try to do in the chapter, uh, The Price is Never Right, is uh, really focus on some of the options you've got in bundling a package together so that instead of saying, okay, you wanted 10%, here's 10%, that we could say, okay, we can give you 4% on this, but we can also do this and this that are risk containment issues for you that are going to give you more peace of mind and actually save you money in the long term. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how can salespeople get rid of bad habits that get in the way of selling? Steve, I think there's really, uh, for me, it really comes down to three things. One is, you know, realization, practice, and coaching. Um, and the way I would kind of put that in context is as follows. You know, all of us as sellers have got some bad habits that we've been, uh, they come ingrained over a period of time, and we probably don't recognize that we have them. Uh, so we all need to realize that when things are not going as well as we think they should, things aren't working. Typically, there's a manifested in, you know, people are not responding to our phone calls or emails. Maybe deals are taking longer to close. Maybe we've lost some deals or deals going to status quo. We, you know, it's prudent to take a step back and ask ourselves, what needs to change in our selling behaviors? What are we doing that it could be impacting in a negative way, you know, the buyer and, and moving the deal forward? Uh, once we do that, then we need to commit to, you know, improving those behaviors. Once we identify what they are, you know, by, by reading books, listening to podcasts, you know, uh, videos, things like that, uh, reading blogs, we need to commit to some type of educational program or system where we're going to actually improve, you know, our skill set. Um, and then once you start, once you do that, you then got to practice those new behaviors. So, Salespeople can use that, use a DSM or an RSM that they're working with. Uh, they can have a friend in the sales force or perhaps a colleague that's in sales outside of the organization. They can talk to their spouse and practice it with them, or they can work with a coach. Um, you know, any one of those works. 
And then last but not least, you know, the coaching really is to take the input and then repeat the cycle, you know, realization, practice, and coaching. And if they do that, you know, they're going to get better and better every day. And what tips do you have for reps to become customer ready before each meeting? Boy, I think it comes down to research, research, and more research to help you plan for the sales call. You know, do you, for example, do you understand the company, the individuals? You know, do you have really clear optics on the potential problems, uh, opportunities, or threats that may be uh, impacting uh, them on a personal level or an organizational level? Um, and then how you might be able to impact those in a positive way. So it's really taking a look at the current state and picturing, giving them the, that future state that looks much better than where they are today. Um, it's, it's before every sales call or interaction determining, you know, how you're going to provide that value. Um, always think about what's in it for the customer to give you uh, time for their day. You know, if I would say this, remember this, um, time is measured for customer, time is measured in money. And it's their hourly salary plus their benefits percentage divided by the time they spend with you. So if you think about that, you know, is it worth that buyer to spend $100 or $250 um, to talk to you? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great way of, uh, of looking at things. What would you say is a key sales lesson that you've learned over the years? For me, I think it's always been not just do research about the business model, know something about the competition and know something about your customer's customer. Those are two critical areas that we tend to, to miss sometimes. What is your customer's competition doing? Anything that you can find out is highly valued by that individual. If you can learn something about their customer and what they're going through and what they've said, then that's valuable as well. You've, you've got a, 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 a pulpit for making comments and just saying things that have authority with your buyer. Yeah, Steve, I think for me, it's, it's, um, it's never take a customer for granted. You know, once you've earned that business that you work so hard for, you know, it's painful to then lose it. So ensure that you're continually, you know, uh, providing value to them. And here's the key point. They must acknowledge that the value that you're, that you're providing them is really important to them. And oftentimes with sellers, we don't do that. We just assume that we're continuing to provide value and they love us because they keep reordering. Um, we need to go beyond that and make sure that we're actually asking those questions. Are you satisfied with us? Are, is there anything that we're doing that we're not meeting your expectation? Anything we could be doing better? If you had to buy again from us, would, you, would we be your, your selected provider? Just never take that customer for granted. Well, um, as a final takeaway, what should the field salespeople listening today do as a first step towards addressing all these deal-killing obstacles that we've been talking about? I would say by the book. <laughs> that sounds, um, no, sounds let, me, let me kind of back up because I'm not, I'm not trying to sell books here. The idea is to get people to become better. So what I would say is the key isn't getting the book. The key is going through some of the field manuals and the exercises 
and really try to see what fits for you. What can you do that's a easy change, something to remember versus something that's a harder change that is gonna need the coaching and the practice that Tom was talking about. Because what you gotta do is set out a plan for yourself. And the, so the book isn't to, to get more people to buy the book. The book is to get people to be better at the critical skills they need to have to succeed. I think that's, I think that's well said. Uh, you know, that's really what our goal is to help salespeople get better, you know, at their craft. And uh, the book is laid out in, a, in an easy way that you, as a reference book that, you know, I might pick up the book as a sales rep and say, you know what, I've got numbers, chapters one, three, five, and seven down cold. I don't even need to read that. I think I've got, I think I'm really a, a star performer in those areas, but maybe chapter two, chapter nine, chapter eight, maybe chapter 10. Uh, I only run, run across those situations infrequently. I need to sharpen my sword there and get a little better. Uh, that's where I might spend a little bit more time. And then, you know, I think for the others, other, other side of it is, is, is uh, you also can look at the book in a way and say, you know, maybe I think I am a 10 in this area. Uh, let me read through the chapter and see if there's a nugget or two that I can pull from it and say, you know what, um, there's a nugget or two here that I can use that's going to keep me at a 10. Or maybe they, they might reflect and say, you know what, uh, even though I am a 10, there's two or three things here that I have inadvertently forgotten to do that I might want to consider doing in the future. So I think that's where they can get some benefit out of it. And the reference book, a companion workbook that comes with the book, this can, you can download on the web, really allows that practice and coaching that we were talking about to really embed the, the knowledge into their sales DNA. All right, guys. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot to summarize the stuff that we've talked about today just because so many of our listeners are, are on the road while they're listening to this podcast. So Tom Sane and Tom Williams wanted the seller's challenge to focus on the key problems most salespeople face in their day-to-day -day job and create a book that will help these salespeople attack these daily challenges. There are many ways B2B sales is changing today. Technology is obviously vastly changing the world and the way we sell. And there's also the average number of people involved in complex sales is increasing. Stakeholder mapping helps you understand all the key people who are gonna be involved in a sale. The failure to understand all the key people involved in a sale can make many deals fall through. It's one of the top reasons deals don't get over the line. You gotta be upfront and ask if there's anyone else who is important to the buying process and if they should be gotten involved at this point. In order to address the status quo, the sales team needs to have a sense of urgency. Um, well, they need to get their they need to get the the buyer to have a sense of urgency that that's uh, that makes them want to want to get off get off the get up out of their chair and do something. So, salespeople need to be willing to risk making some changes in order to make improvements to their sales process, and then measure the changes in, in terms of the customer's KPIs and and show how that customer can can change their business. Uh, as a result of of adding your product or service to their to their organization, the idea of the black box addresses the unknown and major problems that arise when selling to large companies and committees, and how sales can change based on the group of people that you're meeting, um, 
it's, it's all about determining their buying process and, and these big committees can be a black box, but by asking around and talking to the key people who are, who are on your side, you can find out, you can get everyone on the same page and, and, uh, and actually get things to happen. Uh, work on developing user champions within the organization. And this can be a great way to understand the internal buyers and understand the key things that the, the company that you're selling to really cares about. Make sure to always treat gatekeeper, gatekeepers with respect and ask them for guidance to build credibility. Um, when you're negotiating, make sure that, that when you give something, that you get something in return. And understand what's holding a buyer back from buying and see if, see if you can find a way to, to move the deal forward by, by helping ameliorate that problem. Really understand, you gotta ask what's, what's holding someone back and, and uh, from making a decision and, and then you can fix it. So tell me guys, where can our listeners read more about your work and where can they reach out to you? See, they can, uh, they can t reach out to either Tom Sane or myself um, via LinkedIn, um, or uh, they can go to the our company website, www.strategicdynamicswithansfirm.com. Um, you can order the book on the, through the website, or you can go to uh, Amazon and order it either on Kindle or as a soft cover book. Uh, or if they want to order it through their bookstore, they can uh, go to a bookstore and any of the bookstores, if they don't have it in stock, will uh, we'll order it. Uh, worldwide and we're always uh, always willing to take a phone call and, uh, and talk with sales professionals because we love talking about sales or if you'd like to drop by Tom's house sometime in the middle of an afternoon and have him feed you a drink that yes. would work too <laughs> we're always we're, I'm always always willing to have a drink uh, hot uh, a beverage uh, or a libation uh, and talk sales with anybody that wants to do it fantastic um, well, hey, I hope everyone enjoyed this episode of the Outside Sales Talk. If you have any feedback or suggestions, always reach out to us at feedback at outsidesalestalk.com. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. It helps us spread the word to other outside salespeople. Take care, everybody, and talk to you next week. <laughs>